Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. Welcome to Green and Gold History. I'm Chris Townsend with Dave Feldman, A's historian, also works for ESPN, the Pac-12 Network, and Major League Baseball. We're doing our top 10 series. We've done third base. We've done catcher. Top 10 right fielders today in Oakland A's history. Excited about this one. And uh, we're going to take you throughout the season. We're going to take you around the diamond. But today is right field. Yeah, right field. And the A's have a rich history in right field. Uh, there'll be some names on this list that we all know. Um, and if you think about it, that we, we're doing the top ten. But I would say there's a there's a for sure six guys you would go right off the bat. Those are on your list. Hence the other guys who help fill in. But it's been a fertile position for the athletics since they moved to Oakland. Yeah, the thing about right field, it's going to be a position that normally has power. It's going to be a position where you're expecting the guy to drive in runs. And you expect the guy to have a big arm when you're playing out in right field. Yeah, and the A's have been lucky that way. They've had consistent right fielders. If you go through the errors, you go, well, we, you know, we had this guy played there for five years. The next guy played there for five years. They've been real lucky in that way with power bats, power arms, and some really dynamic, not only players, but personalities. All right. You always have an honorable mention, and I love you. I always love your list because it's funny because some might be a stretch, but you're saying some, you might go, God, he's not in your top ten. Yeah, so here's a few of the guys who didn't make the list. Ryan Sweeney, Travis Buck. Everybody's got a Travis Buck T-shirt, so you said you found a Travis Buck bobblehead. Three. So I moved three years ago into my new house and when we were cleaning out my old house because you know you know when you're here every day you get all the chotskis and all the giveaways and i was going through all my giveaways and i couldn't believe inside remember the backpacks they give out before school so it was a pringles a's back to school backpack and inside of it i had all this stuff and in there was a Travis Buck bobblehead, which I think at some point I will give away here on A's Cast. Yeah, there were such high hopes for Travis Buck when he came up through the system and made the team in 2007, and unfortunately it just never panned out. He couldn't stay on the field, which was the biggest issue. He kept getting hurt early in his career, couldn't get any consistency. He's not on the list. David DeJesus, who was here for a year. How about our friend Jack Cust? Now, he might end up on another list when we do designated hitters. We played a lot of right field for the A's. Didn't play particularly well, but he did play out there. Bobby Kelty, Jose Herrera, Felix Jose, 
Miguel DeLaunay from back in the 70s. And then my special mention this week is for Jose Guillen. Now, Jose Guillen was only a member of the A's for two months in 2003, acquired from the Reds. But this guy in that two months made such an impact, not only as, a, as an offensive player, but as a guy who's just a gamer. Think about this. September 14th, he breaks his hammock bone in his lower batting hand, his left hand, the one that goes against the knob. So now we're dealing with hammock bones now with Matt Olson, right? He's out six weeks minimum. Jose Guillen said, I can deal with the pain. I'm going to play. And Bob Guerin, the manager, was like, you can't play. You're hurt. And Jose Guillen says, no, I'm playing. Took a week off to just to figure out a way to, for pain management, but played the last week of the season, played and started four of the five games in the ALDS, hit five for 11, uh, was just a factor offensively and just a gamer. That's what you want, right? Jose Guillen, for just only two months as an A, he left a real impact. Yeah, the hammy bone is when you break it, they don't heal it. They just take it out. So it, it, it really comes down to your pain management because you're not breaking anything again. The bone is gone. Right. You can't hurt it any worse than it is. So it's just dealing with it. And the amount of pain, and I've talked to players who've had it, it is a very painful thing, especially trying to swing a bat. But Jose Guillen was such a proud player and was, you know, he got brought over to the A's and he felt he had a, a responsibility to them to give them his all. And he did, and it was just—it was a great thing. He even had a big RBI in Game Five and playing left field in Game Five. But uh, Jose Guillen, my special mention for right fielders. All right, we ready for the top ten? Let's go top ten. Number ten. Number ten is what I say ten with a bullet. He hasn't been here very long, but I think he's already made an impact, and I think he's going to continue to make an impact. And that's Stephen Piscotty. You know, Piscotty had a tremendous year in his first year with the A's, especially dealing with everything off the field. We know about his mom, and it took really for that situation to settle down unfortunately for her to pass away but for him to be able to then focus on baseball uh, i can't imagine what he went through those first two months of the season last year new team being back home the responsibilities on him but once that was settled down to be able to focus on baseball he showed you what he could do hitting 27 homers 88 runs batted in 41 doubles he's just a good baseball player and we're already seeing it this year he's in one of his hot streaks now he's playing with big hits running the base as well. I think for the next two, three years with Stephen Piscotty in right field, he's going to move up this list because I think he's that good. And, boy, as we are uh, taping this, he just had an incredible series against the Texas Rangers where he just saw basically over 50 points his batting average just shot up and uh, really expecting a big year out of him. Big year out of him, and he's so capable of it. I, you know, Again, we think about last year, 27 home runs. 88 runs batted in, and he was only really focused for the last four and a half months of the season. Uh, you're going to get a full year out of him this year, and I, I expect him to match or, and maybe surpass those numbers. And even in the day game against Texas, stealing a base in the ninth inning, that was huge. And that's just a good baseball player. I just, I'm excited to watch him play every day in right field. And he's one of the guys, really one of the only only guys that's locked up long term now with Chris Davis for the A's. Yeah, so you know he's going to be here, and it's someone you can get behind, and it's just a stabilizing force in the lineup. He's a guy who can bat in the upper third or the mid-third and is going to be very productive either way. And he's in his prime. He's in his prime. You're seeing the best of him, and the A's have it uh, on a, a contract he originally signed with the Cardinals, but the A's are reaping the benefits of that. Number nine. Number nine is, I think, a fan favorite, uh, Nick Swisher. Uh, Swish was part of the 2002 draft, the Moneyball draft, that was definitely a... Uh, 
talked about and written about. Uh, he came out of it out of Ohio State. He showed up in 2005 playing mostly right field that year, finished sixth in the Rookie of the Year voting, hitting 21 homers and 74 RBIs, grew his hair long, then cut his hair for locks for love. I mean, this was just a good guy, huge personality. Uh, you always knew when Nick Swisher was around. The next year, 06, played a lot of first and left in 06. Milton Bradley was here that season. He played a little bit more right field. But Nick, what he did with Frank Thomas, it seemed like anytime Frank Thomas hit a home run, Nick Swisher hit a home run. Nick ended up with 35 bombs, 95 runs batted in. This guy was tremendous. 2007, moves back to right field for the most part. It's 22 homers, has 100 walks, has an on-base percentage of 381. Yeah, the average might have been not that great, but he was a guy who kept the lineup moving. And I just think personality-wise and the way he played out there just left an impact in everything he did. Yeah, when when he was here for the top 50 and got to interview him after, he still is that hyper, the big energy guy. And really, just it, it seems like all these years, just the way the clubhouse has always kind of stayed the same, no matter who has been here. And he was one of those guys that no matter what was going on, he showed up every day ready to go, and he showed up every day in a positive light no matter what. Those guys mean something inside the clubhouse. They do. It's infectious, right? Somebody comes in, and they're happy, and you feel it. And Nick's such a good guy. He was such a good-hearted person. Um, and he rooted for his teammates, and his teammates can pick up on that. You know, Nick went to the White Sox in a trade. The A's end up getting Gio Gonzalez and Ryan Sweeney. Then goes to the Yankees, wins a world championship with the Yankees, and had some huge years playing for the New York Yankees. And that town loved him, and he loved the town back. Uh, it's just that personality. You see him on TV now, and he still does some stuff for Fox Sports, and he's just fun to watch because he just loves baseball. And it was just he was great for the A's. And, and think about when he went to the Yankees because the Yankees are all this businesslike. And he showed up, and they were like, wow, and he energized their clubhouse. Definitely. He was different. He was that, that ball player that uh, wasn't the pinstripe business-like. It's like, here's Derek Jeter. He's going to rib Derek Jeter. He's going to have fun with Derek Jeter. He's just not going to be in awe of him. I, he was the perfect person for that team in the 09 Yankees to help win a world championship. Number eight. Number eight, Matt Stairs. You gotta look back at Matt Stairs' numbers with the A's, and you're gonna be blown away. So he signs basically as a free agent in '95. Nobody wants him. He came up with Montreal and the Red Sox. He's out of a job. The A's bring him in. Uh, he doesn't really get much of a chance in '96. But '97, now he's playing. '97, he has 27 homers, 73 runs batted in. 1998, 26 homers, 106 runs batted in. '99, 38 home runs, 102 runs batted in. No, we hadn't seen offensive numbers like this from an ace player in a while, especially in the 90s. 2,021 homers, 81 RBI on a team that just mashed the ball. He was also such a tremendous pinch hitter, four career pinch hit home runs, five career walk-off home runs, uh, tied with Ricky and Reggie for the most. He is the third highest slugging percentage in Oakland A's history. Matt Stairs has the third highest slugging percentage in Oakland A's history, only trailing Mark McGuire and Jason Giambi. And he was Matt Stairs. He was Canadian. He was happy. We're talking again about personality. Uh, little guy with a big swing. Uh, had that Yosemite Sam look about him and just come up swinging the lumber. He was a tremendous pickup by the A's in the mid-90s when nobody wanted him. And he put up those numbers. And then he leaves the A's in 2000. He ends up playing for another 11 years. Hitting huge home runs and setting the all-time record for pinch hit home runs. This is Matt Stairs. This guy was a force. 
uh, with the bat. I think he gets lost in the NA's history how good he was. I say this with all due respect. We used to call him the beer softball league guy, right? He looked like a beer softball league player, but the way he made contact and just he swung out of his you-know-what, he would almost be a perfect player in today's baseball. Yeah, with his on-base percentage and his power. It plays now, and it played then too, as you saw with it would be able to drive and runs. But now even more so, he wouldn't go under the radar like he did in the 90s, like where he was just, oh, this is a one-trick type of player. He had to look a little deeper and go, no, he gets on base. And then he does hit home runs, and he hits home runs in big spots. And he also had a habit of, in the 90s, we started to see some Cuban pitchers come in and some Japanese pitchers come in. And for whatever reason, Stairs would always homer off those guys. Uh, El Duque, home run. Uh, the pitcher for the uh, the Yankees that George Steinbrenner called the Fat Toad, who I'm blanking on his name right now. Arabu. Arabu. Hideki Arabu. Boom. Home run. It's just It was unbelievable what he was able to do against foreign-born pitchers. And maybe that's because he's Canadian. He was foreign-born himself. <laughs> and, and you know what I liked about him, too, is normally you think of small guys with a big swing. It's going to be all pull happy. He had the power to the opposite field, too, especially into the left center gap. He was just a good hitter. You know, and that, He was the Phillies hitting coach for, for a season. Um, and he's always talked about if Jason Giambi ever becomes uh, a big league manager, which might happen. I think a team, when Jason's ready to, to come back into baseball, he's being a dad right now, yeah. but when he's ready, he's going to make a tremendous big league manager, and Matt Stairs is going to be his, his hitting coach, and that's going to be the most fun coaching staff in all of baseball. Yeah, When we had G here last year and interviewing him for the top 50, He's got little kids. He doesn't. He doesn't have kids like I am a thirteen-year-old. I mean, he's got. Uh, he's got little kids. It's going to be a while. But that's the one thing. Where was his last? Was Colorado his last stop, or was Cleveland, or was it Colorado? In Cleveland was his last stop. Oh, it was Colorado where he got the got a chance to interview for the job. Right. I mean, someone I could see Jason Giambi giving him a job because get away from the things that happened. Uh, you know, obviously with PEDs. Really, a great baseball mind. A great baseball mind, and that's when you know in that '99 A's with Matt Stairs and Jason Giambi, this was a team that was just starting to feel themselves, right? They become really good in 2000, winning the West. The '99, you can see them start to those building blocks and those baseball minds between J, between G and Matt Stairs and the way they would talk and dissect the game. You knew you had something special, and I think they have a lot to teach players still today. Will Giambi show up in top first baseman? I think he's got a chance to show up there. <laughs> All right, let's go to number seven. Number seven. I don't know how fans feel about this guy. Ruben Sierra. It's tough. You get traded for Jose Canseco, right? In the middle of a pennant race. In 92. The A's are already going to win the West. And now they, they decide to trade Jose Canseco, which still, it blows your mind that they would do that, right, in August. It almost, as much as it blows my mind, they traded Ioannis Cespedes in the middle of a pennant race. It just doesn't happen. But they brought in Ruben Sierra. Now, Ruben was a very good player for the Rangers. Very good player. Came up very young, switch hitter, power from both sides. Uh, finished second in the MVP voting in 1989. So this was, it was, wasn't that crazy, because they also got Bobby Witt and Jeff Russell. And cash, as Jose likes to always tell us. So he comes over in 92. He does okay in September, hits 277, has a really good ALCS, hitting 333. But in the offseason of that year, I, somebody must have gotten to his ear and they said, hey, you're replacing Jose Canseco. You need to bulk up. You need to be a power hitter. You need a 50 home runs. And that's what he did. He bulked up. And I think that really cost him his hitting prowess because he was a quick bat guy and he got too big. 
And he still had an okay 93 power-wise, 22 homers. He only hit 233. And this was a 300-hitter Ruben for most of the 80s. Uh, but 94, he comes back and does a lot better. It's 23 homers, 92 runs batted in, be- makes the all-star team, uh, plays every day. Um, his clutchness was always debatable. He sometimes would drive in runs when they didn't seem to matter. And when they did matter, he didn't have the best at bats. But overall, his numbers were okay. The A's finally ended up trading him in 95 for, get this, Danny Tartable. You remember Danny Tartable as an A? Oh, wait. The man who was, he was like the Cal Ripken of his... <laughs> I mean, I think most people remember Danny Tartable now from uh, Seinfeld reruns, right? Because he's on the car trip with George. Uh, But Ruben ended up playing till 2006. He he was 40 years old. He played in the 03 World Series with the Yankees. He kind of reinvented himself. Uh, But Ruben's time with the A's as the everyday right fielder, he solidified himself as the number seven right fielder in Oakland history. Tony LaRusso's nickname for him? The Village Idiot. Doesn't that kind of say it all? Yeah. And, you know, there's there were things about Ruben that, that were hard to explain sometimes. But as a baseball player, and when he was focused and motivated, he was still a really, really tough out. I just wonder if you go back then, because they didn't have the knowledge of the players, especially players on other teams the way we do now. We re- You rely on scouts and baseball people and who knows who likes, who likes what. But if you really would have known everything about Ruben Sierra at the time, like we, we know everything about a guy's personality. There's no secrets out there. Would they still have done that deal? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there was a lot of other extracurriculars that came with Ruben that you would have had to take into effect that you would have known. Um, I think in that time they were so focused on just jet-setting Canseco out of here. For whatever reason, uh, Tony LaRussa, Sandy Alderson – they felt they needed, for this team to win, for the A's to win, they needed Jose gone. And they got stuck in their mind. And if that's what they felt like, getting return of Russell, Witt, and Sierra, that's a pretty good return to get on August 31st. Uh, I still don't think it was the right move, but that's what happened. That's history. Number six. Number six was a A's right fielder for almost seven full seasons, eight seasons with the club. Probably now more remembered for playing for the Dodgers, unfortunately. But that's Mike Davis. You know, Mike Davis was the A's right fielder. When Jose Canseco came up, Jose was a left fielder because Mike Davis was in right. Uh, came out of Herbert Hoover High School in San Diego, somewhere close to you, I'd imagine. Uh, Hoover was in our division. I grew up about five minutes from Hoover. Never lost to Hoover in football or baseball. But uh, Hoover, the home of Ted Williams. See, that's that's a pretty good legacy right there. And that's where Mike Davis came from. Uh, he was a guy who could hit for average. He had 275 and 83, stole 32 bases that year. Uh, had an off year in 84, but in 85, came back with 24 homers, 24 steals. He had 287, 22 home runs. He was a consistent player on these A's teams. Now, these weren't very good A's teams, but Mike Davis was a middle-of-the-order guy every day who played. Now, the A's ended up trading him. Um, goes to the Dodgers. I should say trade him. He's a free agent. He signs with the Dodgers. Uh, and he has the big at bat in game one. Two outs, ninth inning, facing Dennis Eckersley. Eckersley is a guy who doesn't walk anybody. Mike Davis is a batter who doesn't walk. So what happens? Mike Davis walks. Unbelievable. And then Mike Davis steals second base, which gets lost in this whole thing. Because Mike Davis steals second base. If Ron Hassey, the ace catcher, decided to throw the ball, it would have been batter's interference on Kirk Gibson, and the game would have been over. Because Gibson had taken a swing and fallen across the plate 
All Hassey had to do was throw it. And Doug Harvey, the home plate umpire, was going to call catcher's interference. And history is different if Ron Hassey throws the ball. And I'm still not over it. <laughs> Dramatically different. One of the biggest home runs in the history of this game. You know, it's interesting. When they did that interview last year when Eckersley and Gibson sat down and they talked about it, Gibson brought that up. Gibson brought it up that, hey, if Hassey had thrown the ball, game would have been over because I was all over the plate. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But Mike Davis steals the base. He actually hits a home run later in that series. Uh, kind of a thorn in the A's, but it's out of baseball after one more year. Uh, but for the A's in the, in the early 80s, Mike Davis was every day right field. Number five. Number five, Spider-Man, Josh Reddick. Josh Reddick came over from the Red Sox for Andrew Bailey and Ryan Sweeney. We've seen Ryan Sweeney's name a lot, aren't we? Swingles. <laughs> uh, and then had a tremendous 2012, 32 bombs, won the gold glove. And, again, we talk about fan favorite, his personality, and what he did not only on the field but the pieing of guys off walk-offs, coming out in Spider-Man outfits, climbing the fence in Toronto to make unbelievable catches, having a three-homer game. Unfortunately, he spent 13, 14, and 15 hurt. Uh, he was just seeming he had a sprained wrist, a knee injury, an oblique. You know, in 2015, he still was able to hit 272 and hit 20 bombs. 2016, fractured left thumb cost him the first two months. It was just he never could stay on the field. But you saw in that 2012 season how good he could be. Um, I thought when he came up with the Red Sox, you saw an inkling of that. And he reminds me of Piscotty. Because although Piscotty being a right-handed hitter is just – that type of player, as a young player, you say he's going to put up power numbers and average and, and be athletic for you. But Scotty reminds me of Reddick in that way. When the A's got Reddick, that was like, that's the type of guy you need. You need these athletic players. And Reddick was that guy. And just, again, what he was able to do with the fans in right field, um, his own teammates starting with the pieing of players and the Gatorade and the whole thing, it just it made for a winning clubhouse. Careless whisper. <laughs> And the whole right field would be, yeah, the the WWE belts and um, the big personality like Swisher. Yeah, and, and you need that, I think, in one of your outfielders. I always felt that. You need to have a big personality in an outfielder. Uh, I like to see Ramon Laureano, as he grows, gets to be a bigger personality because how athletic he is and how dynamic he can be, if we could see more of his personality, I think that's a good thing. And fans, they latch on to that, right? You see guys... And you just want you want to be a fan of theirs because they're so much fun, and you feel like you're in it with them. And I think with Reddick, and especially the fans in right field, it always felt like a team out there. They were all together rooting, rooting on Josh Reddick. Number four. Number four is Jermaine Die. And Jermaine Die, you talk about how huge this guy was acquiring him in 2001. The A's, they needed something with that team. Now this is a team that got off to a terrible start. Uh, Two and ten, eight and eighteen, but it turned the corner with that pitching staff. But they needed that one extra piece, and he was that piece of the puzzle. Just a tremendous right fielder with great power, great ability to play right field, a tremendous arm. Um, and then, of course, in the in the end of the old one season, the A's ended up going twenty nine and four, twenty nine and four to end the season. They win the first two games against the Yankees in the ALDS. Lose game three, one to nothing. And then game four is where Jermaine Dye fouls the ball off his leg, breaks his leg, spider fracture, just cut the heart out of the team to see Jermaine Dye lying in the grass under the, the broken leg. And you don't see foul balls fouled that high up off the leg very often. That's, you don't get broken legs that way because no one does that. Unfortunately, Jermaine Dye did that. 
came back in 2002, um, and this is this is something that gets lost in history as well. So he's hurt, right? He break, breaks his leg, but the A's still are able to sign him to an extension in the offseason. They gave him his last year of arbitration for 2002, but then they signed him for 2003 and 2004 at $11 million each, which was a huge deal for the A's then. That's how much they believed in him. In 2002, uh, 24 homers, 86 runs batted in, just coming off this leg injury. You know, the A's go to the playoffs again. 2003 was the lost season for him. For whatever reason, he has a knee injury early, uh, misses most of May, and then he crashes into Jose Molina at the plate in July and is out with a separated shoulder. He's having a terrible year, comes back in the playoffs, though, and in game four at Fenway, hits a three-run homer off John Burkett. And you think, he's saving his season, right? This, this, this is the guy. But then game five comes up, and this is another Feldy bitter moment. <laughs> Second and third, one out, down by a run. Derek Lowe on the mound. Jermaine dies due up. Grady Little, the Boston Red Sox manager, is on the front step of the dugout, putting up four fingers. He's going to walk Jermaine Dye. He's going to load the bases. Ken Maka calls Jermaine Dye back. Calls him back. Jermaine Dye, who already had the big homer the day before and looks like he's swinging the bat great, calls him back. Puts up Adam Melius. You need to put the ball in play here. Even if you don't think they're going to walk him. You need Jermaine Dye to bat there. Adam Melius comes up, strikes out. They they walk Singleton. Terrence Long takes a call third, third strike. Series over. I just still cannot believe Jermaine Dye did not get to walk to the plate. And even if they were going to walk him, I still want Jermaine Dye at the plate. Because who in the right mind pinch hits for Jermaine Dye? Can I give you the townie bitter moment? Please. The reaction by Lowe after Terrence Long, the gesture that he had was so bushling. It was. It was weak. The little chopped down thing. But I was just, I just infuriated. And the thing about with Ken Maka, too, you know, this is Maka's first year as manager. But in 2004, 2005, there would be times you go into his locker room or his, his, his manager's office and you'd just be having a normal conversation. And out of nowhere, he'd bring up why I pinch hit for Jermaine Dye. It was like he was still trying to. To, in his own mind, decide why he actually did that. It, it was nuts. It was it was nuts. It's Jermaine Dye. Jermaine Dye, who later in 2005 is the World Series MVP. So 2004, Jermaine Dye comes back, has another good year. But this was a prototypical big, tall right fielder, home run hitting guy. And the other thing about Jermaine, and I'll never forget this in the 2002 season, um, you know, this is the streak year, obviously, and this is a very good A's team. But... We're in Pittsburgh, and we arrive, and there's time for everyone to go out to dinner. And there's Jermaine Dye and David Justice making sure everybody on the team, all 25 players, are invited and come to dinner. There's going to be no separation. There's no clicks. It was those two guys making sure everybody was involved. And it was one of the coolest things to see. And you don't often see that on a lot of teams where everybody hangs out. But those A's teams, everybody hung out. And they were all invited, and nobody was left out. Number three. Number three was a guy I loved growing up, Tony Armas. You know, Tony was a – he was our first big power hitter after the championship years for the A's, right? We had the bad years in 77, 78, 79, these terrible years. But then there's Tony Armas in 1980 hitting 35 home runs, driving in 109 runs, finishing 12th in the MVP, part of one of the greatest outfields in the history of baseball with Ricky Henderson in left, Dwayne Murphy in center, Tony Armas in right. There were no balls dropping with those three guys out there defensively. And they all played shallow. 
because they all came up as center fielders, and they all came up as guys who like to go back on the ball. So by doing that, they're able to play shallow, and they would just rob hits and still go back and rob hits that way. And then Tony had a cannon for an arm, a clutch hitter, hit a home run in 1980 off Dennis Eckersley when no right-handed hitters were hitting home runs off Eck with that slider. And Tony stepped in, crushed one. Game went 12 innings. Wayne Murphy, it's a walk-off off Mark Clear. Everybody's happy. Uh, 81, Tony Armas, his tremendous year, the strike-shortened season. He had 22 homers to lead the AL, finished fourth in the MVP. This is what I remember, though, about Tony in this year. So they had the strike. They come back, and they're going to start the, the second half of the season now with the All-Star game in Cleveland. But no one's really played baseball here for two months. But they're going to go to the All-Star game. And there's Tony coming up to the plate, pinch hitting in the ninth inning, and having to face Nolan Ryan. <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? No one's still throwing 100 miles an hour. Tony hasn't seen a pitch like that in months. Three pitches later, Tony's going back to the dugout. But but Tony was great, part of that part of that team. Uh, 28 homers in 82. Uh, they ended up trading him then to the Red Sox to get Carney Lansford. Uh, but Tony's brother, Marcos Armas, actually played 15 games with the A's in 1993. His brother. Uh, didn't hit, hit quite like Tony did. And then Tony had a son who pitched for the Expos and the Nationals for seven, eight years. So there's a good legacy with Tony Armas. But for me as a kid, especially on those A's team, that was the power guy. And that was the guy you just fell in love with. All right. We're down to two. And you want to talk about big names and big personalities in Oakland A's history. It doesn't get any bigger than this. Who is number two? Number two, Jose Canseco. Now, let's go back to the early 80s, right? So you had the Billy Martin A's, and then they trade Tony, and, and 83 is not a very good year. And all of a sudden, 84, we start hearing about this Cuban outfielder. Big, tall guy, swings a monster bat. His name's Jose Canseco. Can't wait to see this guy. In 85, the A's televised a spring training game, and we got to see Jose for the first time, and he hit a bomb in Phoenix. Still going, I think call him up at the end of 85 and we get our first taste of him hits his first major league home run off jeff russell the rangers hits it one hops the old ice plant in the coliseum not into the ice plant no one ever did that no matter what you hear no one did it (laughs) but he one hopped the wall in front of it and we went oh my and then in 86 teaming with dave kingman he's the rookie of the year Playing left field now. Now, he came up as a left fielder again. We talked about Mike Davis. He was in right field. So in 86 and 87, Jose's playing left. And they actually have Joe Rudy as a coach to help teach Jose how to play left field. In 88, things change. He goes to right field, and that's the year he puts it all together. 307, 42 homers, 124 runs batted in, 40 stolen bases. 40-40, you say? No one has ever done that. He did it. And he did it as a baseball player. What I mean by that is that 307 average. That year in 88, when Jose would get two strikes on him, he'd shorten up. He was a good hitter. He wasn't taking that big swing with two strikes. He was trying to put the ball in play and move the ball to right field and keep the average up. And it paid off. Paid off big. Um, unanimous MVP. That's Jose Canseco. This is there was nobody bigger at this point in the game. He is a superstar. Even with Mark McGuire on the team, and then in '89 when you add Ricky, uh, it's still Jose. Jose is the one going to Madonna's apartment in New York and late for a game because he's hanging out with Madonna. Fight, then fighting with almost going into the stands in New York. Almost going to the stands. He's the one who's 
doing some stupid things off the field with cars, maybe driving a little too fast, maybe trying to use rocket fuel in a car. But that's Jose. That's what you want, right? Uh, he breaks his hammock bone in 89, the first time we've ever heard this, a hammock bone. No one ever heard of this before. Jose breaks it, and then two weeks later, Jose's brother, twin brother, Ozzy, breaks the same hammock bone. Again, we've never heard of this before. The twins do it. Uh, still comes back in 89 in the second half, 17 homers. A's win the World Series. 1990, another monster year, 37 homers, 101 RBIs, 91 44 homers, 122, finishes fourth in the MVP. Just, he's Jose Canseco. Now, what's happening, and Tony LaRusso has talked about this before. He was asked, you know, if he could go back, what's there's one thing he could change about his manager's career. And he always talks about Jose. He felt that when Jose got the big contract during the 1990 season, that he lost touch with Jose, that he couldn't keep Jose's mind on baseball, that Jose started to drift. They started worrying more about things off the field. And when playing, all he cared about was home runs. He didn't care about defense at that point. And he started to play more DH because of that. Uh, and Tony always felt that it was it was his responsibility to keep Jose's mind on baseball and that he failed him in that way. Uh, but Jose was such a huge personality. I don't know if anybody could have kept him just on baseball. Because Jose loved the limelight. He loved being the, the lightning rod. And he, he loved himself being Jose Canseco. We still see it today when he does things. He loves Jose Canseco. But he was huge, and he was the superstar that the A's needed in that time. Uh, best team in baseball, and he was the best player in baseball, at least in 88. I remember when they did the documentary about him being blackballed. I went out to Concord, and I hosted it with the director and all the people that uh, were a part of it. And you really got to see then, still to this day, how much – this fan base loved Jose Canseco. And, and I think about the one all-star game at Wrigley Field where that was back when you actually had the people. They didn't have the rooftop bars, but people were hanging out the windows. And I remember during the home run derby, there were people holding signs, hit it here, Jose. I mean, he was the biggest star in baseball. To think now when you'd say the biggest star in baseball is with Oakland, you'd think no way. Back then, they were the biggest team. They were rock stars. And uh, Jose Canseco was the man. And we go to number one, where number one is a part of the greatest run in the history of the athletics franchise, but definitely the greatest run in A's history. Reginald Martinez Jackson. When your name and number is high above the Coliseum, it's harping Mount Davis, it's a pretty good bet you're going to be number one at your position on one of these lists. And Reggie Jackson is the all-time right fielder in Oakland history. He's, he's Reggie. He was he was Mr. October before he was Mr. October. Uh, a guy who was drafted by the A's. The Mets could have taken him number one in the draft. And they took a catcher named Steve Chilcutt. Uh, Steve Chilcutt did not make the major leagues. <laughs> Reggie Jackson was up with the Kansas City A's in 1967. Hit his first home run at Angel Stadium in 67. But really... When the A's moved to Oakland, and he was he was the guy everyone was hoping to see, the slugger from Arizona State. Uh, you know, it's funny you see Reggie now; he doesn't seem that big, right? But in 1968, he was a big guy, a big guy for a baseball player, and he had the power. Uh, it's 1969, 37 home runs before the All Star break. Ended up with 47. As he talked about, that he it got a little overwhelming for him, and it got a little nervous as he was chasing 
what the media was having him chase was Roger Maris's record of 61, which just happened eight years ago. So it wasn't out of the realm that this young kid in Oakland could hit 60 home runs. But it was a little too much for young Reggie at the time. He only finished with 47. But he comes back. He has big years in 71, 72. Uh, he doesn't get to play in the 72 World Series. Injures himself in Game 5 of the ALCS versus the Tigers, stealing home. Because Reggie had wheels. Reggie could run. Reggie was a tremendous defender when he was young, and he could steal bases. And he steals home. He tears his hamstring. So he's out for the World Series. And, again, something Reggie always talked about, how he cried that night, that he wasn't going to get to play in the World Series. But he comes back in 73 with a vengeance. First, he wins the AL MVP in the league. Then he goes to the World Series and becomes the World Series MVP. Huge hits all around, including big home runs in, in six and seven. It's just, it's Reggie. He had this this way about him. When the lights were on, that's when he was at his best. He was a huge personality. Now, we're not quite at the talking stages when he goes to New York, but Reggie was still a media darling. He still had things to say, and, and you had to listen to Reggie because he was this huge, huge superstar, or as Sports Illustrated said, on the cover, super-duper star, Reggie Jackson. Finished his career with the A's, 268 career homers, came back in 87. Uh, second and only McGuire. Uh, he was a six-time All-Star, four times top five in the MVP. Uh, and, of course, the AL MVP in 73, like we mentioned. Leaves, gets traded to the Orioles, a season that a lot of people don't talk about, but he was very good for the Orioles in 1976. Uh, and the A's received Don Baylor in return. Um, but then he goes to the Yankees as a free agent, and that's when he becomes Mr. October. Three home runs in Game 6 of the 77 World Series. Uh, 78 in Game 2, the big at-bat against Bob Welch, where Welch actually strikes him out. But it was such a huge at-bat. Ten-pitch at-bat. The whole game is riding on this. Reggie swinging like you've never seen him swing before. And Welch getting him. Reggie getting Welch back. In Game Seven or Game Six of that World Series, hitting a towering home run again, one of those that are still going because he's Reggie. He was just, he was unbelievable. And for the time with the A's and the best team in baseball, he was the best player on the best team in baseball. Yeah, I mean, you just think about all the the clutch hits that he had throughout his career. Even when he was out of his prime, he always seemed to show up big time. And so when people say there's not a clutch gene, well, uh, please check Reggie Jackson's career. No, exactly. And he always knew when the lights were bright. I mean, starting with the 71 All-Star game, with the home run against Doc Ellis off the light transformer in, in Tiger Stadium, uh, getting to the World Series and winning the MVP. Uh, World Series MVP again in 77. And little moments, like when he came back to the A's in 87, uh, opening night at the Coliseum, he hits a home run. The crowd goes crazy. They're calling for a curtain call, and somebody comes out and waves. The crowd goes nuts. It's not Reggie. Alfredo Griffin decides to take Reggie's curtain call on opening night. But other moments, like he always knew when national spotlight was on him. The A's had a Monday night game that was televised. That's when you know Monday night baseball was still a thing. Uh, here's Reggie who's been in a slump. First time up against the Angels, boom, home run. Lights are on. Reggie shows up. He was just he was a showman. And you wanted to watch Reggie if you were a fan because he could do so many things. And, again, the huge personality, the way he talked, the way he talked about himself, it's Reggie. Um, my favorite Reggie story is we go to Tiger Stadium uh, doing the A's telecast because Reggie was an A's broadcaster in 91 and 92. My first time at Tiger Stadium was with Greg Papa, who was the A's play-by-play announcer, and it was also his first time there. And, of course, you want to see where Reggie hit the ball from the 71 All-Star game. That's, that's for all of us growing up, that was our memory of Tiger Stadium. So we get there in the, in the broadcast booth, and we're looking out towards right field. 
We're kind of looking towards the line, and Reggie sees us looking out there, and he knows exactly what we're doing, why we're looking out there. And he just comes up to him and he goes, not there. And he kind of points more to right center field, there. And you look out there, and there's a transformer, and it, I swear it's 500 feet away. It is high and deep out in right center, and Reggie's just there. He kind of gets a big chest, just smiles as he watches us see and notice how far that ball went. Yeah, when he went to New York and he stepped in, they say, did you come to New York to be a star? And he says, no, I brought my star to New York. And, of course, the famous the straw that stirs the drink. But for those A's teams, you know, one of the great teams of all time. There's only been two organizations to win three straight World Series. That's the Yankees and that's the A's. Reggie was the star of those A's teams, and great teams need a star. He was, and you notice it now during the reunions. Because you'll notice when the A's have had reunions and Reggie's not here, you feel something's lacking a little bit. But when Reggie's here and the team gathers, guess who's in the center? It's Reggie Jackson. And Reggie knows how fortunate he was to play with Joe Rudy and Gene Tennis, Ken Holtzman, Vita Blue, Ray Fossey. And you see that even when he's the center, and he's the, he's the guy, he's the linchpin, he's still very appreciative of the players around him. Now, I don't know if that was always the case when Reggie was playing here in the early 70s, uh, but I think being able to reflect on that, he knows how lucky he was. Um, he also, his friendships with white players, where this was a big thing when Reggie came up, Reggie being a black athlete and white players, and that was never an issue on those A's teams. I mean, he came up with Joe Rudy and Raleigh Fingers. They never thought of anybody as, as color, and I think that's a big part of that A's team in the early 70s. Being here in the Bay Area, which was very inclusive at the time, it was never an issue. Uh, and it's kind of neat to look back on. It wasn't that way in a lot of different cities, but in Oakland, you're accepted. Play ball. Let's go. And, you know, the way they all ra- rallied around their hatred for Charlie Finley, I think that helped a lot of that, too. Because when you talk about going against the man, the man in that case was Charlie Finley. Uh, and Reggie and those boys, they did everything right. They were champions. And Reggie, was the, he was the leader of them. Number one is the Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson. Let's go down the top ten once again. Number ten with a bullet, because I think he could rise on this list, is Stephen Piscotti. Number nine, Nick Swisher. Number eight, the Canadian, Matt Stairs. Number seven, Ruben Sierra. Number six, Mike Davis. Number five, Spider-Man, Josh Reddick. Number four, Jermaine Dye. Number three, Tony Armas. Number two, Jose Canseco. And number one, Reginald Martinez Jackson. Your top ten right fielders in Oakland A's history. Where do we go next on the diamond? I'm thinking infield. I'm thinking we go back to the infield. I'm thinking maybe we go to the uh, second base. What do you think? Second base. Ooh, go back to Dick Green back in the day winning winning World Series. Dick Green. You have Mark Ellis. You have Tony Phillips. Scott Spezio. How about Brent Gates? There's a name you don't hear very often. Tony LaRussa said Brent Gates would someday win a batting title. Tony Russo was not correct. What? Didn't Tony play second base? Tony played a little second base. Will he make the list? <laughs> Maybe the honorable mention. All right, that's going to do it for top ten. There are your top ten right fielders. You've been listening to Green and Gold History right here on A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.